So D&I are going to be, diversity and inclusion are going to be the mechanisms by which equity is to be achieved institutionally. If that gets switched out for anti-racism, it'll probably still be a very similar program with very similar things being said. I've heard the scuttlebutt, but again, like I said yet last night, I don't know if this is, I don't know how solid this is yet, but the this, this so-called scuttlebutt around this is that diversity and inclusion will be branded as not presenting the values that they're truly trying to align with because it doesn't center race. Um, but we're gonna switch gears to diversity now, inclusion tomorrow, and see how the nuts and bolts of this work. Luckily, this should, I have a lot of reading I'm gonna do to you um, from their literature on diversity, but I think we should be able to do a tighter lecture on this than we did last night. So what is diversity and what is it for? We'll start with the, the kind of big picture just to kind of ease into the topic. We mentioned it last night, the idea of diversity is that you're bringing people with different perspectives together in order to create something that's a more profitable or productive whole. That's the, that's the rationale behind diversity. That it's very simple, it's laudable. It actually, when the diversity is genuine and purposed or functional, when you have functional diversity, it actually does seem to, re, re, uh, to produce re results. It actually does seem to actually help you overcome uh, bigotry, if that's a thing that's still a, a problem for you. But there are ways that work and there are ways that don't. These military hot button or hot seat approaches that the diversity industry uses almost to uh, a trainer don't work. But there are approaches that do work. For example, work putting people in mixed groups and having them work toward a common goal. They tend to forget about the differences and work toward the common goal and to bond in the process this is actually something that's been well known to have evidence. Those of you who've paid attention to my co-author, Helen Pluckrose, you know that she, when she was doing her um, master's thesis, or one of her master's papers, I don't know if it's a thesis specifically, got in trouble for saying that that is an appropriate approach to diversity by her faculty members and said that that actually would cause people to think racist things or whatever and told her that she should actually change that claim. Um, but it actually can work. Getting people together to work on a common goal can bring people together. And if there are relevant places where different perspectives might be relevant, which sometimes, again, might be culturally relevant or identity. I don't like mixing identity and culture. I don't think that they're the same. People should be individuals regardless of where they happen to come from. But there are reasons why cultural diversity can be a valuable thing especially, for example, if you work in the travel industry, just as a very simple uh, example. You could very easily offend somebody if you don't understand the culture they're coming from. Maybe you take some, a bunch of yahoos to China and take the chopsticks and stick them straight down in the pot of rice um, and offend somebody if you don't understand these kinds of things. So there is something to cultural sensitivity, and there is something to having diversity of, not necessarily identity, but of cultural representatives to be able to bring that information. So it's not a to I don't want to give this idea like I'm just like, ah, diversity means communism. I actually want to really make the argument that diversity is a very colonized tool that has been purposed because, and the reason diversity has been so interesting despite not being their main values is because there were some big open doors created for it by the Supreme Court primarily that opened the door to gigantic industries for diversity <coughs> trainers whose manuals we heard from last night started coming out in the 70s 
And now, you know, people like Robin D'Angelo write these manuals and make obscene money. It's best to think of Robin D'Angelo, by the way. She is a critical whiteness educator, as she calls herself, but she's genuinely a diversity <coughs> trainer. Uh, white fragility is based on her practice, her experience, her working experience in doing basically the kind of white awareness training that Judith Katz was advocating for and then watching people get pissed off and then she wrote this book called White Fragility to explain it. So she was doing diversity consulting. Um, so we now see then that there's a difference between how normal people would view diversity, some functional goal is being achieved by bringing people with different perspectives together versus how the woke are gonna see diversity, which is going to be in terms of that the only relevant thing is power dynamics in terms of creating difference, right? It's all for them down to identity politics. So what you actually want to have is, a, is the same basic approach to identity politics represented by different identity groups. So it's always going to be critical theory, but you're going to have people who look different doing it. And so that's, for example, why when Kanye put on the Make America Great Again hat and he came out and he said, I think for myself, Tana Hissy Coates wrote a couple of days later, you're no longer black. That's why Nicole Hannah-Jones, the architect of the 1619 Project at New York Times Magazine, tweeted and then quickly deleted the tweet that there's a difference between being racially black and politically black. And so you have to have the identity and the identity politics right to count as diverse. And hopefully I can explain to you in this lecture why they think that way and how they think that way. But there's this gigantic difference there where maybe you're bringing people together with different expertise, maybe it's even cultural expertise that matters that is a form of expertise, maybe there's a lot of different things that you're trying to get people with different perspectives together for some reason or to overcome some kind of a barrier, like there is bigotry or there's lingering bigotry and some kind of a thing. And so you put people together on a project and you bring them together. You know, you could say, well, that's ridiculous, you know, in this day and age, but critical race theory is making people racist again. And so people coming together to do joint projects to overcome their racism is going to be a project we're going to have to undertake again. But it could also be bringing political rivals together or religious rivals together. You know, get you a couple of Catholics and a couple of Protestants and make them build a picnic table together and they'll be friends and drink beer on it. Well, maybe not beer, but depends on the Protestants. The Catholics will. <laughs> if you get the right Protestants, they'll outdrink the Catholics. <laughs> Especially if they're Irish. Yeah. So how are they pulling this off is the same story. It's a language game. They're screwing around with the word diversity they know that they can appeal to the idea that bringing together difference in certain circumstances produces beneficial outcomes. They not only know that this is true, they know that people resonate morally with this. So it is a positive good truth that has positive moral valence. They tap into this and then they creep in the back door and start to say that, well, identity is actually the most important aspect of having different perspectives. They're, they're magnifying the differences between what it means to be white or black or gay or straight. They're magnifying those at first that that's a very important, then the most important, and then as Ladsden Billings had it, the central construct for understanding difference, right? And so identity Marxism is at this point coming in and it says actually, this is the only way to understand relevant difference. Why? Because as we heard last night, equity work is everybody's work. That was from the equity task force in the state of Washington. 
right? So everybody's supposed to be doing equity work or diversity, equity, and inclusion all the time. And so what happens with neo-Marxism is coming in and everything has to be thinking in those terms. Every other term is not a productive use because it's not doing the diversity or equity work. And so when identity Marxism infuses into diversity, not only is identity and this politics around identity the only relevant thing that's been magnified out to where every other form of diversity, political diversity perspective, doesn't matter at all. Um, and so now diversity means, by means of this linguistic trick, bringing critical theorists in who have different backgrounds in critical theory. They have a different authentic positionality, whether that's that they're black or whether they're Latino or whether they're one of the like 2% of Latinos that call themselves Latinx, or whether they're gay or straight or whatever else. Um, that's where that racially black versus politically black comment by Nicole Hannah-Jones becomes super relevant. You have to have the correct politics or you don't count as the identity authentically. The reason for this is because of the ideology of identity Marxism or of, of the big, big, even bigger picture, what has become identity politics since the 1970s, is that the conditions of power in the society literally, structurally, and materially determine who you are. And so there is the authentic description of, of blackness. There's an authentic description of whiteness. There's an authentic description of gayness. And that the critical theory is the only one that actually has that right. Everybody else is somehow tucking and hiding racism or sexism or homophobia or heteronormativity or whatever it happens to be into the package. So individualism, colorblindness, et cetera, all reproduce white supremacy, they say. Um, so this demands that we have a clarification of terminology, just like we did with, with equity. We saw that equity actually refers to, this isn't even a clarification of terminology, it actually refers to social equity, which was a pillar of, uh, became a pillar of public administration in the 1960s going forward. And then when you infuse that with the neo-Marxist approach, it becomes critical social equity, which is the administered precursor to critical social justice, which is the name of the whole program that they run, according to Robin D'Angelo, who we'll hear from shortly. Here we have the same thing. I haven't, they actually say social equity, and because there's critical social justice and that parallel between equity and justice, I feel comfortable saying that there's a critical social equity and acting as though that's a formal term. There is no such formal term that I've run into around diversity. They just say diversity, 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 diversity. So I'm going to propose a number of options. The one I think we're going to run with is critical diversity, but it could be structural diversity, standpoint, or positional diversity, or identity diversity. You could come up with lots of different ways. It could be social diversity if you wanted, but critical diversity is going to be the key term because it's using critical theory to understand what counts as diversity and what doesn't. Um, regular approaches to diversity not only can be valuable, but are this is why that message I gave you at the beginning yesterday about discernment is so important, whereas the critical diversity, real diversity is valuable, critical diversity is um, a mechanism and a rationale for creating commissars that are going to run your entity according to uh, the, the party vision. And so the, to give you the proof of the difference and some insight into their approach and how they think about it, we're going to read from St. D'Angelo. This is from Is Everyone Really Equal? So it's really Azam Sensoy with Robin D'Angelo. Again, to give you the context of this book, Is Everyone Really Equal? 
was first written in 2012. It's in its second edition in 2017. So they stand by it, I would imagine. And it was widely distributed to teachers. It is a pretty standard education manual. The first time I read it, my reaction was that it was like finding the, the, the dead body in the well. It's a Robin D'Angelo, for whatever you like or dislike about her, has a wonderful penchant for glaring honesty. And she, she tells the story way too clearly. And so when we hear what she's talking about, this book, in fact, is the one where I came up with the term critical social justice. I didn't make that up. She spends in the first edition most of the first of the preface explaining that there's a difference between social justice and critical social justice. And she says that most people in that book, I don't have this quote in front of me, but she says that most people that are activists in this use the term social justice in order to try to reclaim its true commitments. And that's either a very close paraphrase or a quote. And then she goes on to say, but we're going to focus on critical social justice, which derives from critical theory. And then she goes on to describe the Frankfurt School. She actually goes on to describe the postmodernists as well. She actually mentions Marx. And so it's a very different thing that she's talking about. And she even says explicitly, like I said, this kind of too generous honesty or whatever that she has, that she's, oh, no, people who just say social justice are trying to claim there's some true, true commitments to what that really means in the bigger liberal picture, and they're trying to tap into that, but we're going to be very specific, and we're going to actually do critical social justice. She's not as good at the language game as her, her uh, colleagues. So in this section, this is from the second edition near the end of the book, pages 217 and 18. Um, I don't know where that falls in the first edition. I haven't compared. All I know is that the, the page numbers are all different between the two books. So I don't know if, if this is near the beginning or the middle or what, or still at the end. I think it might be near the end because it's the wrap-up chapter. But it says, critical social justice considerations. What do you see? One of the dynamics at play in this scenario is in the difference between how a person is using a critical social justice lens, sees diversity, and how people are using a mainstream lens, see diversity. See, so the same thing. She's actually saying that when you do diversity through critical social justice, you do it completely differently than mainstream approaches to diversity. So this is that difference between critical diversity and regular diversity, very explicitly named. And what does it look like? She says, the students looking through the lens of individualism see diversity in terms of personality. It's interesting that she didn't choose the word character there. From this lens, everyone is first and foremost a unique individual, and social group memberships are unimportant. The instructor, who is looking through a critical social justice lens, see the, sees the room in terms of key social groups. So you see the shift between the critical perspective and the mainstream perspective, is we're no longer looking at diversity in terms of what each individual brings to the table that's different, whether that's skills or interesting information or background or whatever, it's not the individual. It's now we have to think of people as members of key social groups. From this perspective, she says, many major minoritized groups are absent, including peoples of color, people with visible disabilities, people from a range of socioeconomic classes, people in non-traditional gender career tracks, and people with different linguistic and cultural capital. Makes me wonder in what groups she hangs out, but if you read White Fragility, as a long confession that she only hangs out with white people and that she gets very uncomfortable if she encounters a group of black people. And she says it over and over again in both White Fragility and her new book, Nice Racism. Um, very confessional book. But this word minoritized, let me linger on that for half a second, because that's not a word you usually run into. Many major minoritized groups, blah, blah, blah. Why minoritized? 
instead of minority, which is what normal people tend to say. And the reason is because you have to remember that they're only minority in the sense of being somehow different or smaller in, in power, well, in numbers and thus power, because of the power dynamic. So the power dynamic of white supremacy minoritizes other races. It makes them into minorities. This is another one of those tricks, though. You have to pay attention, just like historically marginalized group. So you could be in South Africa, which is 90% black, and the 90% group cannot be called the minority, but it can be minoritized by white supremacy. You can have 51% or 52% of the population be female, but women are not minority because they're slightly majority. They are minoritized by patriarchy and misogyny. So that's the mentality, and this is very important because their take on diversity and all the rest is all, you have to understand it, it is all through this lens of power, that there's some power dynamic that's doing actively doing something to certain people but not others. So it's minoritizing certain people and privileging other people. It's, it's a weird way to put it, but frankly, it's like pagan gods. It's like the powers, the power dynamics are like pagan gods. So like Zeus was in control of the lightning and the weather or whatever, and Poseidon's in control of the sea and probably the beach or something. You know, he's got all these different things that they're, they're in their domain, their dominion or whatever. And they control the, they're the powers of the world, what, what, what Tolkien called the Vala, the, the powers that walk the earth and shape the world, right? And so you have these powers personified as deities, in both Greek and Tolkien mythology. Here instead, in the scientific Gnosticism mythology, we have power dynamics take that same role. There's this mysterious white supremacy that nobody actually has to be involved in because it's systemic. Literally, they openly say, no people have to be, there can be no racist, zero racist people, zero racist institutions, but the, but the system itself might still make disparate outcomes and therefore be racist. That's a power dynamic that's as mysterious as a god. Rather than personifying it as Poseidon with a fishy beard and a trident or whatever, now they're creating it into the idea of superstructures and systems because it's the Marxian mythology is what it's being grafted onto. But power dynamics work the same way as deities, and we humans are but playthings of those deities, which are the powers of society. She says, the absence of these key groups is not an accident, nor is it irrelevant. See, there's secret intentionality here. That's critical theory for you. It is a result of long-term structural oppression. The power dynamic has done it. The homogeneity of the class in these terms is never neutral or benign. And the forces that have led, it, led to it are always in play. I'm, told, I'm telling you, deities. Because we are socialized to think of ourselves as individuals, you know how like Zeus comes and whispers in some chick's ear and then all of a sudden she's pregnant or whatever, you know? Because we are socialized to think of ourselves as individuals, especially in our dominant groups, it is often difficult to understand why it is useful to think about people in terms of their social groups. However, when we think in terms of groups, we can begin to see patterns of structural injustice, recognize that key perspectives are missing, and know to pursue those missing perspectives. So now identity groups become important. Social groups, we're going to think in terms of social group identity rather than in terms of individuals, and the only way to understand what that really is about is the power dynamic and how the power dynamic shapes what 
group identity means, including the remark that if you're in a dominant group, you probably aren't even aware that this is happening. This is what diversity training is based on, this mentality. She says, when we don't see our social surroundings in terms of groups, we don't notice how segregated we often are from minoritized people. Segregation becomes normal and unremarkable. Thus, we are not segregation. Segregation is the word she's using for this. This is a trick, this is a, a deceptive use of language. She's not talking about some law saying separate but equal, or that people need to ride at the back of the bus, or that people with masks can't get on the plane or whatever, or without masks. She's saying instead that people gathering as they happen to gather, and that not being perfectly evenly distributed by racial category, like a total mixture like you would see on a fake diversity poster that's been manufactured, that becomes proof that there's some kind of a power dynamic in play. This is another reason, she says, why colorblindness is so pernicious, because we are not compelled to change this segregation. Listen how poisonous this is. If the students in this scenario insist that they don't see color, then they can, they can deny seeing segregation and its impact on schools, neighborhoods, and children's educational opportunities. They can also deny their own racial socialization and how it shapes their worldview, but not seeing how structural power circulates through segregation does not mean that power is absent and no oppression is occurring. Indeed, power is reinforced in the very fact that we can look around and not see anything of value missing. So you see this willful ignorance, if you will, or what this is actually what she's describing is what Christy Dotson called pernicious ignorance. Uh, there are different types of all the same thing. There's active ignorance, pernicious ignorance, willful ignorance, white ignorance, and they're early all species of the same thing. Um, this might be white ignorance, I'm not sure, which is sometimes called white ignorance to really point out that you're ignoring it on purpose, even though it's not on purpose. Um, this idea, though, that privilege makes you blind to the oppression, makes you not care about the oppression, makes it impossible to do anything about it, is core to their worldview. So what are you going to do? You're going to segregate the classroom, saying that it's already segregated, so now we're justified in breaking it into different groups. This is exactly what happens. They segregate in order to desegregate, because they say the power dynamic is already segregating it. They segregate the group, and they take the people who are in the oppressed group or groups, and they explain to them how they are oppressed and how it's the other people's fault. They take the people who are in the dominant group and tell them that they can't see the power dynamic and how they're harming the other people. And then they have the cheek, I don't know if she does here, I haven't read further down just in this minute, but they tend to have the cheek to say, this isn't about guilting or shaming anybody. This isn't about creating division or conflict. It's in fact the opposite, and it's just a straight lie. That's all this is going to do. She says, indeed, power is reinforced in the very fact that we can look around and not see anything of value missing, expanding your capacity to see at the group level, collectivism in identity, where groups are and where they aren't is critical for seeing how power is reproduced in institutions. From a critical social justice perspective, the more social group diversity there is in any social context, the more we increase our collective ability to consider multiple perspectives. So that's, by the way, what we call an assertion. It's not an evidenced statement. There's not even an argument for it. It's just an assumption made by the critical theorists of identity. That from a critical social justice perspective, she says, so our assumption is the more social group diversity there is in any social context, the more we increase our collective ability to, see, to consider multiple perspectives. 
You have to put people from different groups together to get them to consider different perspectives. Of course, the presence, she said, of multiple perspectives or social group diversity is only the first step. The second is to foster an environment wherein people from minoritized groups and their allies can voice their perspectives and have them listened to and taken seriously. There's your inclusion and belonging, part and parcel with diversity. Environments that are numerically diverse around key social group memberships are not necessarily prepared to support and engage with those perspectives. So you can't have true diversity without inclusion. Like I said, they're linked yesterday. So you can see then, this is Robin D'Angelo's explanation from a critical social justice perspective of diversity. It does not mean mainstream diversity. In fact, she disambiguates between them for us. Um, her book, this book, was actually watershed for me in understanding that there are two perspectives that are being equivocated upon. They're trading between the two meanings of the word, depending on who they're talking to and when, for a variety of different way, uh, reasons and, and, and uh, ends that they're trying to achieve. So one of the, for example, one of the things they might do is they might forward a policy using the very benign mainstream definition and letting people assume that that's what it is while they have a very specialist definition. Once the policy is passed and in place, all of a sudden diversity has this very specific definition. It's only a matter of making a small change to something or no change at all, depending on who's in charge, to interpret it according to the new meaning. So that's like a Trojan horse. It's in fact using the Mott and Bailey backwards in order to do a Trojan horse. The other side of it is of course that they try to implement these crazy policies and people call them out and they say what? You don't value diversity or you're racist? Which is the opposite, that's the regular Mott and Bailey. And it gives them the ability to strategically equivocate between these two positions so that they can keep pushing forward. And this is where useless liberals and academics are useless. Because they're like, oh, yes, we must argue about the ideas. We must argue about the ideas. And they're like, while you're arguing about the ideas, the diversity administrator is ramming this stuff through into policy. No, no, let's debate what's really meant. And they're ramming, the, they're, they're doing it while everybody else is fussing around about the language. They get you to fuss around about the language and then do it. And unless you have somebody on site, when it gets proposed, who can do what I call stealing their Mott and bombing their Bailey, which is to be able to make both sides of that argument on the spot and point out the manipulation, they're probably gonna pull it off. Good people who operate typically in good faith, assume good faith, and try to work out how what, they've, what they're hearing or seeing is being done in good faith. And that is the specific thing that the critical approach is manipulating, which is why I unabashedly call it evil because it takes advantage of the best parts of humanity's ability to communicate and get along in order to achieve its own not that good, in fact, bad ends. That's, I don't know a better definition for evil unless we wanna get all biblical about it and say by, by using deception about the meanings of words, and I believe the enemy with a capital E is often also re referred to as the deceiver with a capital D. And so it's like, you know, whatever you think, whether you're Christian or not, if you think even just that, that this is all mythology, the mythology of Satan is that he's the deceiver who makes you think one thing while he's doing another, or while he's getting you to do another and misleading you. That's exactly how this works. And that's why I said discernment, which the Christians have been very keen on for 2,000 years, to be able to tell the difference between these things, is such the important repellent to communism. So what critical diversity actually means then is having a large number of people who occupy different socio-cultural positions, and that's a formal term, position, 
because it means it's being understood through systemic power, all of whom have adopted a critical consciousness. In other words, they've learned to think of this in terms of power dynamics and the group identity in terms of power dynamics, in terms of critical theory of that social position. So it's only people who have critical consciousness are gonna qualify as diverse. So just to briefly explain positionality to you and critical consciousness, your positionality is, the, the idea is that there are these power dynamics like, like these deities out that operate in the world and human beings are in, stand in relation to those power dynamics. So if it's a racial power dynamic, we'll keep it simple and just do one. White people are privileged by it depending on how dark you are. Brown people may be more or less privileged by it. Black people, again, depending on how dark or light you are, that's called colorism, are uh, minoritized rather severely by it. So there's this whole weird hierarchy of racial oppression and dominance built in that at the top is whiteness and at the bottom is blackness. The mechanism in between is called anti-blackness uh, in the downward direction and it is called white adjacency in the upward direction. And um, the entirety of society is, is ordered that way, they believe. And where you fall in that hierarchy is your positionality against the, the power dynamic. And so intersectionality is a mechanism by which you get people to constantly think about their positionality and make their positionality relevant to all things. So you can't, I can't sit up here and tell you anything without saying, of course, I'm saying this as a white man, a straight white man who manspreads frequently and constantly <laughs> right now. So I have to acknowledge and apologize for my privilege and I have to invite people of color and women to come and correct me and if any gay people want to correct me, they're welcome to as well. And if you're Robin D'Angelo, you say that you actually won't take commentary from, she says that she's white people talking to white people and that she won't take, uh, what is it? She, won't, she will only take certain kinds of criticism from people of color and she'll only take certain kinds of information from from white people because she doesn't want to exploit the people of color and she doesn't want to um, reinforce whiteness by talking too much to white. This is a totally poisoned way to think. And our friends, I mean, if you think how far has this gone in society, of course, we've already talked about, many of you have talked about the different affinity groups that this has come into in your life. And a lot of you found me through the Trojan Horse video uh, on the skyscraper in New York where we were talking about the Southern Baptist Convention. Dr. Jarvis Williams of the Southern Baptist Convention a few years ago, major uh, professor is he a, is he a, uh, the Southern Southern Baptist Theological Seminary right in Louisville in Louisville, and so um, he actually started out some whole talk that was very imbibed with critical race theory and I don't have the quote in front of me but he started out by saying you know as a black man blah 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 so I have to remember that as as a man that I have to defer to the women and as a as being black, I have certain insights to provide. That's him engaging his positionality. That's what intersectionality is supposed to demand. And it's there at a serious professor at the leading Southern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, in the world. Um, you know, when, every time I tell people this stuff's deep, deep in the Southern Baptist Convention, it like jaws drop if they don't already know that. They think, wow, they're really conservative. Doesn't matter, remember. All this crazy stuff really started in like Norman, Oklahoma, which is redder. Well, Norman's not, but everything around Norman, is, you throw a stone from Norman in any direction and it's blood, 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 like three levels more blood red, blood to the seventh power red state. And uh, so conservatism is no necessary shield against this. 
In fact, faith not properly practiced is no shield against this at all. In fact, it's probably a weakness. It's easily corrupted. But intersectionality exists to do this positional thinking. Positional thinking is how diversity is understood. If you're not engaging your positionality by saying who you are, you don't have any standing to be able to make any claims. The reason for this, as I mentioned briefly yesterday, the master-slave dialectic is at the heart of their thinking. Their belief is that the way that the master-slave dialectic works is that, um, the, that the people who are privileged by a power dynamic who will refer to as masters and the people who are minoritized by it, to use their word, who are slaves, have different perspectives on the world. The master lives in the master's world, so the master is holds the master's perspective, but is surrounded only by mastery, if you will, so they only have one perspective on the world, whereas the slave is not only living in the master's world and therefore has the master's perspective, but also has the oppressed slave perspective within the master's world, so the slave has dual sight and therefore can see more than the master. And the master, the master-slave dialectic is ultimately that the master can't learn what oppression is like without an oppressed person to tell him. So the master-slave dialectic, the idea with the master-slave dialectic is that you, if you are in a position of privilege, you can't possibly understand what somebody outside of a position of privilege is going through, and you must be informed by them. Now where the Marxism comes into this is this concept that's known as epistemic exploitation. So a privileged person asking, so a privileged person has to ask a minoritized person to explain oppression. But doing the act of asking is a form of exploitation in exactly the way that Marx said that the bourgeoisie, the capitalist class, exploits the proletariat, the working class. In other words, you are extracting some kind of surplus cultural value from the people that you're asking and getting them to do emotional and cultural labor. You've probably heard of emotional labor. To, in, to inform you, but as somebody who's already privileged, you're just working in your own benefit and making yourself an even better good white, as they call it in the literature. And so you're actually exploiting a person of color to, to raise your status as a privileged person even further. And so that's an act of exploitation. So they give you this position where you have to do this, but you can't do this. What does that mean? It's all rigged, so you're wrong no matter what. And this is where the this is the ultimate nature of Marxian conflict theory is to constantly put the people in the so-called privileged position in a double bind where no matter what they do they're wrong, and this is what you're going to be baking in in a diversity training through this act this idea of of diversity. So how did all of this kind of come to be? Oh, I guess I didn't talk about critical consciousness yet. Sorry, I was going to. Critical consciousness is the idea that when you see it, you can see it. Everybody walks around in a false consciousness if they have access to privilege, everywhere they have access to privilege because of this dual sight thing. And you, you actually are walking around believing that the world is ordered for you, and it is natural that it's that way, it's supposed to be that way, it's based in, in things like individualism or merit, or you earned your way there, et cetera. And this is actually a false understanding of what's going on, and if you were, to get drunk on critical theory, you would have a true understanding of what's going on finally because you would see the nature of the power dynamics and you would basically learn to see the pagan power gods and the pagan power gods would become visible to you and then you have a awakened critical consciousness of what's actually happening. You don't have authentic diversity unless you have a critical consciousness of your positionality. So I can now use lots of big words that they would use and you understand what I've said. You, your diversity is not authentic unless you express it through what they call an awakened critical consciousness that is 
that you understand it in terms of the critical race theory or the critical gender theory or the queer theory or the whatever theory that they have written into the rules because they've defined what it means to be authentically black versus a race traitor or white adjacent or seeking white approval or whatever their other disgusting term that they happen to throw down. I didn't use any of the epithets that they throw down on these people. The question, how did all this come to be? You know, there was an industry building up around equity. It was in public administration. It's a little different in diversity. I mentioned Supreme Court cases that opened the door to equity because of the disparate impact rulings, especially Griggs versus Duke Power um, from 71. Diversity, the diversity industry kind of came into being almost entirely because of a couple of decisions in education, in higher ed, uh, in admissions in colleges, primarily in universities. Law, I think, was this a medical school and then into something like a law school or something like that. And um, what happened in these two benchmark or landmark cases, 1978, University of California versus Backey, that's B-A-K-K-E if you want to look him up, it's the Board of Regents of the University of California versus Backey, 1978, uh, that established, in fact, this was, Lewis Powell was Chief Justice at the time. Okay, so Lewis Powell, if you don't know who he is, is not exactly what you would describe as a standard leftist. He is, in fact, kind of an ur-neocon. <laughs> he was definitely not a leftist. He was integrally involved in what's sometimes called the Gingrich Revolution and, and so on that took place in the, the 70s that led to the neocon rise in the 80s. And so Lewis Powell's, we're not talking about a Marxist judge unless you want to call the neocons broadly Marxist, which I'll leave that to you. I mean, a lot of them happen to have been defected Marxists who played conservative, but we'll just not dive too deep into that. Um, so in this case, Powell ruled that diversity admissions to higher education and maybe schools more broadly are acceptable because there is a compelling interest for education, sometimes significant enough to justify it. Sometimes having more diversity on campus is so valuable to the educational mission of the school that you can have race-conscious admissions. So these are these affirmative action cases that were busting out throughout the 70s once civil rights law came into, into the picture. And so we have in 78 Backey in a very split court. Um, it's very interesting. There were, it was a 5-4 court, but when you read the decision, it's a very long, complicated decision because there were two things on the table, and it was Powell and four justices agreed on the one ruling, and Powell and the other four justices agreed on the other with nothing. The only, the only intersection was, was Powell for the two. And so it was a very split court uh, that doesn't carry a lot of strength in, in you know, later jurisprudence. So the other case we'll talk about in a minute becomes very important. Um, but yeah, now you can, we can, you can use this kind of post-civil rights um, multiculturalist attitude that had kind of risen as kind of like what's the good thing to do through the late 60s and 70s as a justification that well, what we need to do to enhance people's education in an increasingly diverse world by what they meant was um, we have a world where people do travel more often out of the United States, but more importantly also we just ended segregation, in this case 15 years ago, about 15 years ago, and now we have 
a multicultural society of legal equals that are interacting with one another and having all kinds of, of issues. And so rather than saying, no, we're going to lean into Americanism, they were like, we're going to lean into multiculturalism. It's the difference between a bunch of different cultures that are kind of protected and like islands that don't really meet with one another very well, like a, a identity archipelago, if you want. That's a fun phrase. <laughs> and on the other hand, you have kind of the e pluribus unum idea of pluralism. And they're rejecting in the 70s pluralism toward multiculturalism. So we, need, we need to look at black people as having a unique black culture. We need to look at Asian Americans as having a unique AANHPI culture. Because it turns out the AAPI acronym is not new. The AANHPI is Asian American, uh, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander. Because that's one culture. <laughs> right? So there's like a joke we could start that's like a Korean, a Japanese, and a Chinese walk into a bar. A bartender says, you all have one culture. What happens next or whatever? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're all Asian. You're, you're AANHPI now. Um, that idea, though, this multiculturalism idea was really driving the decision-making at the time. And it turns out that this is probably bad jurisprudence. We should be using very, very limited race-conscious admissions. And the idea that this is compelling... Uh, a compelling case that education is better if we bring people from different cultures and say, oh, you know, black people have a culture, AAPI have a culture, Latinos have a culture, natives have a culture, whatever you want to have, they're all different cultures, and we're going to just assume that white is the dominant and default culture, and so all the other ones become diverse cultures, and diversity becomes a valuable educational program. That's basically the rationale behind this. Now, Powell, being conservative, did say that the compelling interest clause is on the university's, it's the university's burden to prove that there's a compelling interest that adding race-conscious admissions will create the kind of diversity that um, is educationally beneficial, right? So that sounds like it's a very reasonable, you know, limitation on the scope of this, but it turns out to be the back door through which all of this happened. Because what it did was it created a whole industry of people who can now say, oh, we're allowed to, we can't do affirmative action. We can't do quotas. That's what they got rid of. No quotas, no set-asides by race for the number of seats in a, in a class. But we can do this, actually, if we are focusing on the idea of diversity, if we're trying to build diversity. And then Powell says there has to be a compelling interest, and it's up to them to prove it. So all these academics set to the task of figuring out how to create the argument for a compelling interest rooted in what amounts to quotas. You don't get the magical power of diversity unless you have enough of them. This is called uh, the critical mass argument, which began at the time in uh, response to this decision. Just to kind of give you a flavor of what Powell said in Backey, the fourth goal asserted by the petitioner is the attainment of a diverse student body. This clearly is a constitutional, constitutionally permissible goal for an institution of higher education. Academic freedom, though not a specifically enumerated constitutional right, long has been viewed as a special concern of the First Amendment. The freedom of a university to make its own judgments as to education includes the selection of its student body. Mr. Justice Frankfurter summarized the four essential freedoms that constitute academic freedom. One, it is the business of a university to provide that atmosphere which is most conducive to speculation, experiment, and creation. 
It is an atmosphere in which there prevail the four essential freedoms of a university to determine for itself on academic grounds who may teach, what may be taught, how it shall be taught, and who may be admitted to study. Well, let's pause here. There's a lot that just got unloaded there when you understand that this stuff can get interpreted two ways. On the one hand, we have it's the business of a university to provide an atmosphere that is most conducive to speculation, experiment, and creation. And we look at what's come out of this, and we see it's the exact opposite. We see utter conformity, where the generation currently in college and younger is the most against cancel culture, even more than the boomers. Because they've been canceled, all their friends have been canceled, they're constantly getting put through struggle sessions, and they hate it. So it is not creating a most conducive environment to speculation, experiment, and creation. So this was not upheld in practice, but on the back of this decision. But you can see where it got in, because the four essential freedoms of the university include to determine for itself on academic grounds, imagine if you could corrupt those, who may teach, what may be taught, how it shall be taught, and who may be admitted to study. So you can automatically start wrapping this into the identity politics that you even heard in the kind of uh, beginning part of this, you know, uh, clearly a constitutionally permissible goal because of academic freedom. Academic freedom, therefore, which is the freedom to express ideas, is somehow intimately concerned with who you happen to be, as though a white scholar who spends his entire life studying Africa couldn't speak as clearly on something like Afrocentric philosophy if they wanted to as a black scholar because of the color of their skin. So you can see that the subversion of these protections is already baked into the wording of this, and this is how these games go. Second, our national commitment to the safeguarding of these freedoms within university communities was emphasized in uh, Keishian versus Board of Regents, 1967. That's not very interesting for us. Three, our nation is deeply committed to safeguarding academic freedom, which is of transcendent value to all of us and not merely to the teachers concerned. That freedom is therefore a special concern of the First Amendment. The nation's future depends upon leaders trained through wide exposure to that robust exchange of ideas which discovers truth out of a multitude of tongues rather than through any kind of authoritative selection. And so here, to pause on this one for a half a second, robust exchange of ideas which discovers truth out of a multitude of tongues. You can again see the nod to where identity politics is going to become the relevant measure. And by the way, identity politics started in 1977, I think I said this last night, at the Combahee River Collective. It does not mean the civil rights movement. It means neo-Marxist identity politics or identity Marxism. And at your leisure, you should look up the Combahee River Collective statement, which was 78 or something like that, where they gave their manifesto, and it's just a total Marxist... Um, Catastrophe. For the atmosphere of speculation, experiment, and creation so essential to the quality of higher education is widely believed to be promoted by a diverse student body. Ambiguity in that word diverse is where it's all happening. As the court noted in Kishian, it's not too much to say that the nation's future depends upon leaders trained through wide exposure to ideas and mores of students as diverse as this nation of many peoples. So rather than we are from many, one, that we have many backgrounds but are one people, we are now a nation of many peoples. There's your multiculturalism attitude from a famously conservative judge. Thus, in arguing that its universities must be accorded the right to select those students who will contribute the most to the robust exchange of ideas, 
Petitioner invokes a countervailing constitutional interest, that of the First Amendment. In this light, the petitioner must be viewed as seeking to achieve a goal that is paramount, is of paramount importance in the fulfillment of its mission. So that's where he's saying it has to be useful to the university's mission in order to um, be able to do this. So diversity, he will, I don't think it's at all the case that Powell, Lewis Powell here in this decision was thinking, let's bring neo-Marxism into the colleges. This is probably not what he thought. Let's make it all about identity factors. Let's create a backdoor to the quotas that we just explicitly said are not acceptable. But this is what's going to get manipulated. Those backdoors were created, and this has not, the, the subsequent jurisprudence on this has not fixed these problems, but has exacerbated them. And that's how the diversity industry became interesting. This decision is where the diversity industry became, you know, those books we talked about last night is where they started, really, in theory, this decision is where the industry became something that could be profitable. Because consultants for diversity, and Judith Katz wrote her white awareness book in this same year, consultants for this way of thinking can now go advise universities that want to do quota-based admissions but need to figure out a workaround to do it. So the progressive administrators can satisfy whatever agendas that they have and look super super progressive and look super good and whatever their, their, their thoughts are, or just bring in some Marxists through the whole entryism avenue, whatever it happens to be as their goal, and this becomes a workaround. So the diversity industry is born out of this decision, which is regents of the University of California versus Backey. A few paragraphs later, Powell says, ethnic diversity, however, is only one element in a range of factors a university may properly consider in attaining the goal of a heterogeneous student body. Although a university must have wide discretion in making the sensitive judgments as to who should be admitted, constitutional limitations protecting individual rights must not be disregarded. It may be assumed that the reservation of a specified number of seats in each class for individuals from the preferred ethnic groups, again, we're still thinking that ethnic groups are relevant to diversity in some meaningful way, would contribute to the attainment of considerable ethnic diversity in the student body, but petitioner's argument that this is the only effective means of serving the interest of diversity is seriously flawed. In a most fundamental sense, the argument misconceives the nature of the state interest that would justify consideration of race or ethnic background. It is not an interest in simple ethnic diversity in which a specified percentage of the student body is in effect guaranteed to be members of, a selected, of selected ethnic groups with the remaining percentage and undifferentiated aggregation of students. The diversity that furthers a compelling state interest encompasses a far broader array of qualifications and characteristics of which racial or ethnic origin is but a single, though important, element. Petitioner's special admissions program focused solely on ethnic diversity would hinder rather than further attainment of genuine diversity. So you can tell that Powell is stuck between these two meanings, and he doesn't know that he's opening the door to critical diversity while he's living in, he's like, yeah, we get people from different backgrounds. He even mentions, and we'll see it in this next paragraph, that, um, I'll just read it to you, uh, a few paragraphs further down in the, in the decision. The, the belief that diversity adds an essential ingredient to the educational process has long been a tenant of Harvard College admissions. Yeah, they're in trouble for that right now because they're discriminating openly against Asian Americans, and that's, by the way, probably the most important lawsuit for our purposes that's happening right now because that's where this can get overturned. The Harvard uh, Asian Americans admissions lawsuit right now is very, very important. So finding ways to support what's happening there and seeing that through. It gets very little press, by the way. Almost nobody talks about it. Uh, the 
Ted Cruz proposed an amendment that's sometimes called the Cruz Amendment. It was Senate Amendment number 1457 um, this year, or six, I can't remember, one or the other, where they were doing the Stop AAPI Hate BS bill that they tried to ram through Congress, and when it got to the Senate, Cruz said, well, let's do this. If you want to stop AAPI hate, here's my amendment. We're going to amend this bill so that colleges and universities cannot discriminate against Asian American students or discriminate based on race at all. And it was a party line vote. Every single Democrat who voted, which was all but one of them or two of them, uh, voted against that. In other words, they voted for intentional systemic discrimination, preserving it. The anti-racist party did that because anti-racism is racist. Not enough attention on the Cruz Amendment either and what it means. So he says, 15 or 20 years ago, however, diversity meant that students from California, New York, and Massachusetts, city dwellers and farm boys, violinists, painters, and football players, biologists, historians, and classicists, potential stockbrokers, academics, and politicians, the result was that very few ethnic or racial minorities attended Harvard College. So now we have the disparate impact thinking coming in, and there must have been a system keeping them out. Remember, this was in 78, and he's saying 10 or 20 years ago, which is when segregation was actually still happening, and he's saying that it was a result of a lack of something like academics, politicians, stockbrokers, violin, football players that was keeping blacks out of Harvard. In recent years, Harvard College has expanded the concept of diversity to include students from disadvantaged economic, racial, and ethnic groups. Harvard College now recruits not only Californians or Louisianians, but also blacks and Chicanos and other minority students. Contemporary conditions in the United States mean that if Harvard College is to continue to offer a first-rate education to its students, minority representation in the undergraduate body cannot be ignored by the committee uh, on admissions. So that's what I was saying, that they've taken up this idea that, if, that there are all these different cultures a nation of many peoples. And if you don't think of it as a nation of many peoples and bring those people together by first isolating their cultures and saying that those things are separate and different from American culture as from many one, then if you separate them all out, then you can say, oh, well, that represents an important different kind of diversity. And if we don't have that, then we don't have a robust education that serves students in the late 1970s and what's happening in the world now that we've gotten rid of Jim Crow and segregation. So in practice, this new de definition of diversity has meant that race has been a factor in some admission decisions. When the Committee on Admissions reviews the large middle group of applicants who are admissible and deemed capable of doing good work in their courses, the race of an applicant may tip the balance in his favor just as geographic origin or a life spent on a farm may tip the balance in other candidates' cases. A farm boy from Idaho can bring something to Harvard College that a Bostonian cannot offer. Similarly, a black student can usually bring something that a white person cannot offer. That's what we call an assertion. The quality of the educational experience of all of the students in Harvard College depends in part on these differences in the background and outlook that students bring with them. You can see this multicultural mindset has already completely infected. This is a conservative judge. With that vagueness about what racial identity brings to the table is where the neo-Marxist argument or the identity Marxist argument gets its, its way in. This is the argument that he gave next is where we get to the critical mass argument that ends up being the problem of the day. This is how they got a backdoor to quotas. Um, the argument was that if you don't have enough of a diverse population on campus, 
If you don't have a critical mass of them, then they're only going to act as tokens, or they're just going to act white. They're just going to go along with the dominant culture. So if you want to have Native Americans come onto a campus and be Native American, you have to have enough of them where they feel safe to be Native American instead of having to assimilate into the broader culture. You have to have a critical mass of them. Same with blacks or Chicanos or gays or whatever else, because they all have their own identity-based cultures. If you want them to be able to be authentically themselves, you have to have enough of them all at once. That's the critical mass argument, and it was born from this decision. He says, in Harvard College admissions, the committee has not set target quotas for the number of blacks or musicians or football players or physicists or Californians to be admitted in a given year. At the same time, the committee is aware that if Harvard College is to, make, to be a truly heterogeneous environment that reflects the rich diversity of the United States, it cannot be provided without some attention to numbers. It would not make sense, for example, to have 10 or 20 students out of 1,100 whose homes were west of the Mississippi. Comparably, 10 or 20 black students could not begin to bring their to their classmates and to each other the variety of points of view, backgrounds, and experiences of blacks in the United States. Their small numbers might also create a sense of isolation among the black students themselves and thus make it more difficult for them to develop and achieve their potential. Consequently, when making its decisions, the Committee on Admissions is aware that there is some relationship between numbers and achieving the benefits to be derived from a diverse student body, and between numbers and providing a reasonable environment for those students admitted. But that awareness does not mean that the Committee sets a minimum number of blacks or people from west, the west, from west of the Mississippi who are to be admitted. It means, that, it means only that in choosing among thousands of applicants who are not only admissible academically, but of other strong qualities, the committee with a number of criteria in mind pays some attention to the distribution among types and categories of students. So now you see that numbers become very relevant. Uh, in this critical mass, you can see where the activists are gonna step in, right? They're gonna say, okay, so Powell has now given us in this decision, yes, we can use race conscious admissions so long as we do it in the name of diversity. And he's also said, well, apparently you have to have enough for it to count or you don't get those educational benefits. So there's our workaround to quotas. We just call it achieving a critical mass of diversity instead of a quota. And you can see why they love to play language games because it gets them around whatever they're doing. The example he then gives is kind of interesting because um, he gives an explicit nod now to this idea of political blackness. He also gives an explicit nod to the black Marxist uh, idea called the black bourgeoisie, which is that, well, Bill Cosby's character on television was black bourgeoisie, and they presented him because he'd be acceptable to white audiences, according to critical race theory, because he's actually a successful person who wants to maintain, you know, stable society, etc. Um, he says, the further refinement sometimes required to help illustrate the kind of significance attached to race, colon, the admissions committee, with only a few places left to fill, might find itself forced to choose between A, the child of a successful black physician in an academic community with the promise of superior academic performance, and B, a black who grew up in an inner city ghetto of semi-literate parents whose academic achievement was lower, but who had demonstrated energy and leadership, as well as an apparently abiding interest in black power. If a good, member of, a good number of black students, much like A, but few like B, had already been admitted, the committee might prefer B, and vice versa. If C, a white student with extraordinary artistic talent, were also seeking one of the remaining places, his unique quality might give him an edge over both A and B. 
The critical criteria are often individual qualities or experience not dependent upon race, but sometimes associated with it. Harvard, as a result of this decision, cooked up this very bizarre and arcane and not at all transparent score that they give people based on their diversity or based on all kinds of factors. Almost all the universities do. They throw in something like, do you play a sport or an instrument? And that counts as being similar to a race, so then it's not strictly by race. And then they provide plus points or whatever they call them to people race as a plus uh, to their admissions. And they say, well, if you, you know, run track, you can get the same points that a person being, just being black could get for being black. So it's not strictly race. They have these little games that they've played, but they know that these are gonna have these kinds of outcomes. You see this uh, idea, though, that political ide ideology in black power also gets an explicit nod, which is gonna, of course, have tipped off the neo-Marxists who are all into that to say, oh, here's our back door. This decision from 1978, like I said, was a split decision. It was very controversial. It got brought back up to the table, and in fact, the critical mass argument became the deciding factor in a case in 2003 called Grutter versus Bollinger, uh, which involved, I think it was a law school at the University of Michigan. And um, it's kind of summarized in this paper in 2003 by another fellow named uh, a law student at Harvard, or a law professor at Harvard, I think maybe, Angelo Anchetta, law something at Harvard. Uh, he was very interested in the critical mass argument and tried to develop it in advance in a law review article in advance of the, the decision about Grutter versus Bollinger, kind of speculating what are the pathways here. He's clearly a big diversity advocate in the critical theory way. In fact, he wrote a book in 1997 titled Race, Rights, and Asian American Experience, and he derives his understanding of race from Michael Omi and Howard Winant, who are explicitly, openly Gramscian. They're students of Antonio Gramsci, and his racial formulation theory comes directly from Gramsci. It's the Gramscian approach applied to race. So if Gramsci is cultural Marxism, this, these guys, Omi, or Omi and Winant, become uh, the identity-based or race-based equivalent of cultural Marxism. And so they came up with this idea called racial formulation theory. That's what's relied upon by the people doing the analysis. I don't want to get deep into the paper by, by Enchetta. It's not really relevant. Um, but he really develops the importance of this critical mass argument. He comes from this perspective. And the activists who worked between, and this is my main point, definitely were very interested in the, uh, the, the Marxist approach to taking advantage of what came up in the Bakke decision in 1978. And so just to read a little bit, I'm not gonna read but just a tiny bit from Anchetta in his paper leading up to the, to the Grutter versus Bollinger decision. He said, Justice Lewis, Lewis Powell did not develop a general test for narrow tailoring, tailoring and backy, but he did articulate standards for both impermissible and permissible admissions policies designated, or sorry, designed to promote educational diversity in higher education. In voting to strike down the UC Davis medical school policy, which set aside a fixed number of seats in the entering class, but endorsing a Harvard College type plan that uses race as a plus factor, Justice Powell offered a set of general principles. There must be no rigid quota or functional equivalent in the form of a set aside or predetermined number of seats for minorities. Minority applicants should not be reviewed under separate admissions track that insulates them from non-minority applications. Race should be one of several possible plus factors to be considered. Other factors may include unique life experiences, challenges, uh, interests or talents, socioeconomic disadvantage or geography. Each applicant must be treated as an individual rather than a stand-in for a favored group. 
No specific racial or ethnic group should be singled out by the program. Rather, the program should look to all racial and ethnic groups as contributing to genuine diversity. So this is, he's summarizing Powell there. He said that's what Powell's intent was. And then he gets all into the critical mass argument and says, well, we've got to understand that what he was saying is if we want to get the benefits of diversity, so from 73 to 2003, or 78 to 2003, and that 25 years, all of the activists that became the diversity industry were very interested in how do we make sure we get enough of diverse applicants in, and the methods are gonna be Harvard College types, so it's gonna be based on essays and interviews and many subjective analyses of personality. Asians apparently are discriminated against because you get low personality scores. Uh, apparently Asians don't have personalities. If you didn't know that, there you go. That's Harvard College for you. It's king of the clown colleges, leading clown college in the United States of America at this day. Um, what they did, though, is they cooked up this means. They were very interested in creating a diversity industry that was going to figure out how to get quotas without quotas and to do it by subjective standards that are going to be based on essays like how much I struggled, creating kind of the victimhood mentality industry, the trauma-informed industry, and then the, the race is relevant to everything, um, race Marxism or identity Marxism approach. So Grutter, Grutter versus Bollinger was in 2003, Sandra Day O'Connor, wrote the majority opinion. Um, this one was not a split court. This was not an ambiguous decision. There was dissent, but it didn't split weirdly five, four, five in two different directions or something like that, and therefore op have an open question about how strong that law is or that jurisprudence is. So it builds on back explicitly, Grutter versus Bollinger, and this is a key target to overturn if we want to get rid of the diversity industry as it exists today. It affirmed the Bakke decision and amplified it. The critical mass argument was explicitly vindicated. It reified also the idea that underrepresented minorities represent diversity. So now you know what counts as diversity, underrepresented minorities. That shifts the frame into that standpoint theory or that positionality analysis from intersectionality opens up the door to using the master-slave dialectic as an excuse for educational value, and thus disparate impact and historically marginalized groups work their way into the picture as activists are gonna be able to work out of this case. Um, that's the, just one I kind of touch on, I'm not gonna read at length from O'Connor. In fact, O'Connor's decision's not terribly interesting. Uh, we had a, I forgot what it's called in the law, but um, Ginsburg, went along with an amendment. O'Connor had said this should last for 25 years, and Ginsburg said no, it should last for as long as it takes or basically forever. And then the biggest and most powerful dissent was from Justice Rehnquist again, who we saw uh, dissented in previous case from last night. And he said, the law school claims it must take the steps it does to achieve a critical mass of underrepresented minor upper, under minority students but its actual program bears no relation to this asserted goal. Stripped of its critical mass veil, the law school's program is revealed as a naked effort to achieve racial balancing. He then calls it a sham that's used to enable blatantly unconstitutional quotas and says that the means that are defended in the decision, Grutter versus Bollinger, are in direct violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And so Rehnquist had discernment and saw through this and saw what was happening, but the decision was rendered otherwise, and all of the diversity industry has been built off of the back of those two Supreme Court cases and the door that they opened, because it was a workaround for affirmative action and quotas. You can't do those. You can't use a quota system. 
But if you call it diversity and say you have to have a critical mass in order to achieve diversity as a compelling interest, then you have a workaround to quotas, which are already ruled to be blatantly unconstitutional and a sham. You can see where the increasing of critical theory is going to come into this. Diversity, I've already kind of talked about it. Diversity has its two meanings. It's going to play upon this. We're going to make diversity mean more and more and more and more about critical diversity over time so that the expertise and identity, in other words, that dual perspective of the master-slave dialectic becomes what determines whether or not you are diverse. So you have to be in a power dynamically disadvantaged situation to count as diverse. And you must be aware of that. In other words, you have to have critical authenticity. In other words, you have to have critical consciousness of your state of oppression. So structural and material determinism, which I touched on briefly, which these, are, are, these two become very relevant now to determining what's diverse and what's not. The theory is structural material determinism is again that material conditions or structural conditions, systemic conditions, are imbalanced. There's an unlevel playing field. And that makes it so that one's character as it develops, one's views, one's beliefs, one's attitudes, the, what, the way somebody will speak or think is actually shaped by the relationship they have to power dynamics. They are structurally determined in who they are going to become. There's no such thing as not judging by color and yes, judging by character, because character is determined by color through the imposition of race. That's Kimberly Crenshaw's famous argument from mapping the margins. There's no getting around it. And if you aren't leaning into that critical interpretation of your identity, in other words, identity Marxism, the identity Marxists are absolutely intolerant, and they just yell at everybody and call them racists if they aren't expressing that one, or race traitors, or white adjacent, or whatever they use, to browbeat people who have other opinions, who are no longer authentically black. I mean, we saw Larry Elder as the black face of white supremacy, according to the Los Angeles Times. We just saw that Dave Chappelle was able to make fun of trans people in his special because he leaned into white privilege. His white privilege. Yeah. Dave Chappelle's white privilege. He had a whole stick about that in his comedy show back in the day. Dave Chappelle was using his white privilege to make his jokes. That's NPR that said that. And that's because they're offering dissenting opinions, which means they do not have the correct critical consciousness, or they don't have the correct politics, therefore they're not authentic diversity. They're the wrong kind of diversity. What happened to me, my cardiologist, Indian cardiologist friend says, where am I on the list? You're white now. I thought I was diverse. You're the wrong kind of diversity. So the current Harvard University anti-Asian discrimination case is probably one of the most important cases for the cause against wokeism that's going on in the Supreme Court right now, one hopes that Chief Justice Roberts will have a sane head, <laughs> best of luck, uh, but this is, that is the opportunity to overturn Bakke and Grutter versus Bollinger. That is the open door. There may be others later, but that door is already open right now. So pushing on that strategically is very valuable. Kind of the key takeaways then, the SCOTUS decisions are actually what created the diversity industry by giving a workaround for affirmative action and quotas. That's it. The word diversity, remember in Judith Katz's book, I said last night, the words diversity and inclusion do not appear, written in the same year as the Backey decision about diversity. Those words do not appear yet. That industry did not exist until all of a sudden it became very profitable to have a workaround and consultancy training to enable a workaround to get to quotas in university admissions based on these two Supreme Court decisions and how they fell out.
That workaround was heavily exploited, not just by progressives who were interested in this, but by identity Marxists who wanted to use it for entryism into the university systems. Critical diversity is the belief that identity Marxists have the only relevant understanding of diverse, that they are the only access to know what counts as a diverse perspective. Oh, you're a geologist and you're a physicist, no diversity in your perspectives whatsoever unless you have different identity categories that are outside of the dominant category and that you have the politics that believe that that's relevant to your geology or your physics. They have the own, the, that's very important to understand. Critical diversity is that the only important form of diversity is what critical race theory says counts as diversity, which is this power dynamic determined nonsense where you're now in racial affinity groups who are gonna be given special treatment or not. In other words, the idea is to use that to come in to set up a situation in which you can enforce equity to eventually achieve justice. These are you know, the buzzwords that mean neo-socialism and neo-communism. Identity Marxists have actually flooded this space to the point now where I don't think the word diversity is even salvageable because all other approaches are either treated by the identity Marxists, which still hold cultural sway, as reproductions of white supremacy or as some kind of cultural fetishism. You're bringing in diverse people as tokens, for example, which is in fact what they're actually doing because they have people with identical politics who happen to look different ways, which is the definition of tokenism. That whole like confession by projection, uh, iron law of woke projection, it's a thing. It's a real thing. This is the iron law of woke projection. They are doing tokenism because the politics are identical, but you look different, and they say that everything else does tokenism, so then you can't be against what they're doing, blah, 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 without being a hypocrite. The point of this from a neo-Marxist critical diversity perspective, the point of critical diversity, therefore, is to install diversity officers, who are the commissars of this way of thinking, to enforce this way of thinking on the entire institution, to write things like community guidelines that everybody's gonna have to follow by, to establish an office of diversity, equity, and inclusion, or diversity and inclusion, or whatever, that then's going to have you know, some reach to be able to punish people. Uh, at Portland State, we all know, I think, my friend Peter Bogosian's story where he was harangued um, on 50-something counts, of, all of which but one were fraudulent, and the one is funny, not serious. Uh, he was accused at the diversity meeting, or the diversity board, of all these infractions, all of which were false, all of which were shown to be without any ground, except for the one, which was that he swears in class sometimes, in a college to adults, and he was like, true. <laughs> um, he did, so he's guilty on one count and innocent on like 52 other counts, and all the other ones were brought up to this diversity board. Now the diversity board didn't have any power to punish him like the administration could, but they could make a recommendation to the administration which could, but what it did was he had to go through two and a half years of going to the diversity office every week wasting his time, constantly wondering what's this gonna shake out, what's the administration gonna do, et cetera. So it creates an atmosphere that, it's, I say we throw sand in the gears of the machine, it throws sand in the gears of dissidents and makes them want to quit. That's their goal, they want you to leave, they want you to quit so they can replace you with somebody compliant. That's entryism. How are they gonna get somebody compliant? They're going to use some biased hiring or admissions policy that's baked in with diversity. So new faculty hires will have to issue a diversity and inclusion statement that'll be graded by a rubric. The one at the University of California, um, Berkeley, in their biology department came out, they gave out a statement, they said we're gonna grade it 
for diversity. We will not use it as a political test for admissions. They were challenged on this. It's going to be used as a political. They said, no, it won't. It will not be a political test. And then it turned out a year later, after this all shakes out in the biology department, we're not talking about the humanities or the social justice department or the ethnic studies. In the biology department, 76% of the applicants to their graduate school program never had their resumes read because their diversity score was not in the top quartile. So it was a political test, and that's how they're going to make sure only compliant people come in. So they get people to quit by making their lives miserable with this nonsense, and then, or firing them outright if they can gin up enough public sentiment and protest against somebody, and then they replace them with people who are going to have to file compliance statements and sign compliance statements before they come in. Textbook entryism. What is going to replace people? As Kendi put it, we read last night, formally trained experts in racism. The UT Austin equity, what is it, diversity, equity, and inclusivity program that they're implementing in a five-year plan. Lots of five-year plans with these people. They're implementing in a five-year plan. Uh, explicitly says, because of civil rights law, we cannot explicitly hire diversity based on race, sex, sexual orientation, blah, blah, blah. What we actually mean is experts trained in diversity. But like I said, the expertise is determined as to whether or not you're a critical theorist of your identity. That's what expertise and identity or diversity means. So they can therefore hire apparatchiks and commissars in place of other people under something that facially does not look that way. It facially looks either beneficial or at least just neutral and fair. So identity Marxists are going to fill all the positions. So critical diversity exists to take over institutions from within. That's the point. Antonio Gramsci, who we just mentioned, had this idea called cultural hegemony. He believed that cultures like Western culture create a force field, if you will, a cultural force field that repels communism, keeps it out. We transmit that from one generation to another through key cultural institutions, he believed. He named religion, family, education, media, and law. And he said to overcome a culturally robust civilization like the West or like America, what you actually would have to do is you would infiltrate those key pillars of cultural production and transmission, and you'll create a counter-hegemony within them, a Marxist counter-culture that becomes dominant within them and controls all of the sway, and then that's going to have a trickle-down effect from those key institutions. The media is going to be constant Marxist propaganda. Education is going to be constant Marxist indoctrination. Church is going to become treated as a media out outlet that's going to become a Marxist propaganda outlet, wedded to, to religious conviction. Law is going to become a tool of Marxism. I left one of them out. We're just, family has to be abolished. They just don't want that. It's going to be replaced by the institution, actually. And so the goal is to establish this counter-hegemony from within. How? By, by getting rid of dissidents, by making them want to quit, or by purging them through inclusion, as we'll talk about tomorrow, and then hiring diversity according to their policies. Entryism. So they, they create a cultural counter-hegemony, or Marx identity Marxist counter-hegemony in the institution. Hegemony is strong. It's not easily broken. It's something like soft power. It's very pervasive, very difficult to get rid of once it's there. And the point is to do that. And the way they do that is through the language games that we were discussing. But that's the purpose of diversity, is to come in and create a counter-hegemony within your organization to turn it into a neo-communist organ. 
equity work is everybody's work. Everything gets redirected to DEI or CRT or SEL or whatever the, the, the domain-specific tool happens to be. Everything gets redirected into that, and everything else is a waste of resources, misdirection of resources, and you're going to hire one after another after another after another diversity consultant or officer or whatever. They get more and more expensive. These universities, UT Austin was earmarking something like $3.5 million a year to these hires for these new officers and administrators. I was just speaking with a president of uh, Oklahoma University, and they have a large number of these people on staff uh, at OU, it's one of the largest budget items in terms of administration that they have, um, is diversity officers. We're talking about Texas and Oklahoma. This isn't Berkeley or UMass Amherst or some silly thing like that, or Cl Chief Clown College Harvard. Big, big business. That, by the way, doesn't count in the diversity consulting number that I told you earlier was 11 figures, or yesterday was 11 figures. This is just other money that goes into it. So that's the goal, is to take over your thing from within. This sort of diversity is not going to help you do your job. It is not going to help your company, your church, your school achieve whatever it's meaning to achieve. This type of diversity is going to bring in people whose job it is to enforce party ideology and to punish people who don't go along with it or to make their lives miserable until they leave. It works to create hostile working environments because those are easily polarized and then captured through a divide-and-conquer approach. We talked about that kind of briefly last night. You bring this in. You wait for a precipitating event. One will always occur. Somebody will always say something racially insensitive eventually, or why not just make it up, or just have somebody say one on purpose that you've paid off to do it or whatever. It's not hard to manufacture one if necessary. Some people will just do these as hoaxes. You know, there's all these stories now coming out of graffiti, like somebody painted the N-word on something, and it, whoops, it was a black woman who was trying to gin up a story about herself. You know, And so it's easy to manufacture if an incident doesn't arise by natural means, but one will always arise naturally eventually. And if you have an already operationalized, meaning polarizing environment that's infused with this critical mentality, everybody instantly has to take a side. Everything turns into the argument. You polarize, you create some fanatics. That's your next crop of diversity czars that are gonna come in and be in charge. You find out who's the biggest dissidents and they're gonna leave or get purged. They're gonna get put through stuff that makes them not wanna work there until they leave. Or they're just gonna get fired outright for some you know, opinion that they have or not having the right position. You're gonna create a massively hostile working environment in that regard. The way that it works is through constant, repetitious public relations and human resources extortion rackets. We're going to create an HR nightmare for you. We're going to create a PR nightmare for you unless you give us another diversity officer who is your legal shield against this liability. We're going to create a gigantic mess, and the answer to your mess, the vulnerability that we just put you into, is to hire five more diversity officers. And as a bonus, your ESG score goes up. It's a no-brainer for these institutions what they're going to do. And the reason is because this jurisprudence on these SCOTUS decisions makes it legal. People say, why don't we just, why do we have to have new CRT laws? Why can't we just enforce the existing civil rights laws? Because jurisprudence of this type has created it so that we can't enforce the original civil rights laws on a level field. You have to take into account historical oppression. You have to take into account disparate impact. You have to take into account underrepresentation. 
You have to when civil rights law is adjudicated. It comes down, obviously, to the individual judge or the individual court or the district, but there's enough of them to where they can get a lot of precedent-setting law passed through strategic lawfare that then entrenches this and entrenches this and entrenches this further. That's why we had to pass, or we need to continue passing, robust anti-CRT legislation as a stopgap while we start to try to awaken people to what's going on because it gives us an extra set of legal tools because the original civil rights legislation has actually been poisoned, or its well has been poisoned, I suppose. Ultimately, diversity in the, or critical race theory if you want, diversity in the critical sense is a cultural protection racket used to create those PR and HR extortion rackets. The idea is to attach identity to cultures, usually in very stereotypical ways. Read Ibram Kendi, read it. Just go read How to Be an Anti-Racist. He's like, over and over and over again, gives these very caricatured tropes about black people and then just basically says all white people believe this. Where you read this as a normal person looking at it and you're like, does anybody, that was like 1950, maybe? Read it, I mean, this is what they do, very stereotyped. If you want the extreme of the stereotyping, you can look at the issue around, uh, with gender, with trans. It's all performative gender. That's Judith Butler's fault, that's a different talk. But gender is completely performative to the point where the way you know if somebody's gender non-conforming is they must know what they're not conforming to and conform to something intentionally different. To rebel against the thing is to actually uphold that thing. And if you look at the actual, especially, you know, I was gonna say especially the, the male to female trans, but if you look at the trans in general, you always see them leaning very heavily into the stereotypes that they perceive from their perspective of the gender that they're transitioning to. There was a joke, I think, on the Babylon Bee or somewhere I saw on Twitter the other day, if it wasn't the Babylon Bee, we'll give them credit because they're hilarious, that said that since I guess California passed a law that there have to be gender neutral toy aisles now. Oh, it wasn't actually Babylon B, we'll give him credit. It was somebody sent me to in a private message, but Babylon B can have it. I know who said it now. And it said, if they're gonna have gender neutral toys, how are the trans parents going to know that their kids are trans if they can't dress up like the opposite very blatantly? <laughs> if you don't have a little boy wearing a dress, how can you possibly know he's trans? Because they're reifying these stereotypes. And then they're using those as the basis for a culture that's attached to that race. If you're black, you have to be authentically black, which means also being politically black. If you're a member of the Hopi tribe, you better act in a particular way. You, you know, you gotta do certain things to signal that constantly, or you're not an authentic member, and you have to be mad about the right things and politically active in the right ways, or it doesn't count. And so they're creating this idea that there's a culture that's a very kind of singular thing that's attached to a pol identity politics stance and then saying everybody of a particular identity category has to have that. That's cultural protection racket in order to do an extortion racket through this diversity industry that came up. And the whole point of it is to disrupt and dismantle dominant cultures as they call them. What does this look like when they put it into practice? Or in praxis as we should say? De facto hiring quotas, Rehnquist saw it, he knew what he was talking about. Critical perspectives become a qualification, expertise and diversity. So expertise becomes perverted as a concept. You can be an expert in being black, being politically black, as a matter of fact. And they can be hired based on that expertise. It's 
kind of one of its big ideas that it pushes the diversity side of things is cultural appropriation being a bad idea or a bad thing. Why? Because of the cultural protection racket. Cultures can't possibly blend. That's some kind of exploitation. The dominant culture is actually stealing from the minoritized culture and then reproducing a simulation or a simulacrum of the minority culture for its own profit and its own excitement or whatever. So you can't have Taco Tuesday anymore because that's somehow cultural appropriation and you're whiteifying tacos or something like that. Because ultimately what they want to stop is people coming together and getting along and feeling comfortable and sharing and experimenting, uh, coming together, finding common ground, developing a common sensibility to oppose tribalism and division because they want to create tribalism and division. It's creating countries or feudal estates out of identities, which are then understood, identities are understood in terms of the most superficial thing. Not like, oh, my identity includes being a martial artist because it's something I do and it informs how I think. Or my identity, you know, is a surfer, not on this beach. No, your identity is I'm politically black. My, your identity is I'm a self-hating white who strives to be less white. Diversity training is meant to teach this in whatever it is that it's brought into. It's also used by doing so, as I just described a few minutes ago, for the recruitment of formally trained experts on diversity or racism or whatever the, hap the word happens to be. So apparatchiks and commissars who are going to come in and reorder the policies and procedures of your organization to be compliant with this all along. And luckily the ESG overlords over there and if they ever met in some weird place like Davos or something like that, you might know who they are. The ESG overlords over there are gonna give them cookies for doing this because they know it makes these things dysfunctional. They also know that big industry, you know, go woke, go, go broke? Well, it's true, except if you're huge. You can afford the cost. You can afford the cost. I don't know if this one's true or not. People should be digging into this because it'd be really, really juicy and, and delicious if it's true. But did you, you think about these weird laws, right, that we're not gonna enforce, uh, we're not gonna prosecute shoplifting below $1,000 or $900 or $1,200, whatever city. Right? Who benefits from that? Let's be critical. Let's do a critical analysis of that. Who benefits from that? Well, if all the stores are getting looted and Walmart and Target and all of those have to shut down, looks like all the people who live there are just going to have to buy their stuff from Amazon. That's right. Yeah, right. Be interesting if Amazon contributed to any of the people that are enforcing those policies, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? That's how a critical theory should work. The goal of all of this is the establishment of a diversity office and everything that they can put in there because that's your party apparatus. That's like you're having in China, your party official that's overseeing how your business is run. They have what they call capitalism at the pleasure of the party. They call it capitalism with Chinese characteristics, by which they mean CCP characteristics, which is communist. That's very important to understand. Those people are gonna oversee future hiring, so party adherence intensifies. They're gonna oversee training so that this is brought more and more to the point so that all of a sudden your, your, your company is ready to split from within. A strategy to take something over, you could refer to as an inside-outside strategy where you fracture the inside, put pressure from the outside, and it has no capacity to resist because it's too fractured. Imagine if you like split up an entire nation's population and have them fighting about whether or not George Floyd's death was the greatest act of racism in the, the history of the country. 
and they're all fractured about that, or they're fighting over vaccines or vaccine mandates, or whether COVID came out of a Chinese lab or whatever they're fighting over, and they're all completely fractured in each other's throats, and then you apply massive pressure, like, I don't know, supply chain disruptions, cyber attacks, et cetera, so they can't get their act together and say something about it. It's classic divide and conquer techniques. Bringing this diversity training into your organization doesn't just polarize so they can scoop up and identify their future crop of party people and dissidents to purge. It also works in this other way, which is to fracture the thing internally so that it will fold when that external PR pressure comes. It'll absolutely collapse when that pressure comes. It's not a good thing to bring this into your organization. That's what it's going to do. Of course, this is going to lead to the massive misallocation of resources. You're going to be, your company's going to be paying very highly paid diversity officers. I talked to a woman who runs a company, was talking to me about this. I think I told you about this last night a little bit. And one of the things that was demanded for them was Goldman Sachs was demanding that in order to get a high enough score to be, be able to play with their asset management and whatever they were doing with that, it was very lucrative for them. They were going to have to hire these diversity managers, the diversity officers, they were gonna oversee how things were operating in their company, and that this company that I was talking with was going to have to pay those people rather exorbitant expertise salaries. And her problem was, is that their company, or one of her problems, there's many at that point already, one of the problems she was facing is our company's very small. We only have, I don't remember what it was, 17 employees or something. So now they have to hire two more employees at about the third or second highest pay bracket and incur that extra expense or they're going to lose this biggest account. That's the lever that they're using this. They're using to do this. And those people are gonna come in as the people who oversee hiring, training, policy, et cetera, to make sure it's all compliant with either DEI or, S, uh, or um, ESG going forward. That's their job. It's to enforce party compliance, to make every entity in the public-private partnership play along the same ideology. Diversity is not good. But you're also going to hire not just people like that, you're also just going to hire, and it's sad to put it this way, you're going to hire by diversity. So you're going to no longer hire optimizing for competence, you're going to hire optimizing for competence given diversity. You're splitting the, you're, you're introducing more variables into your decision-making process. So what you're going to have to do, just like we heard from Lewis Powell, is you're going to sometimes have to favor diversity and bring in a less qualified applicant because maybe he's into black power. It wasn't enough that the, uh, you know, the very talented black son of physicians, you now have to bring in the black power guy. You have to bring in a radical. You have to bring in an activist. How convenient. So you're going to see massive misallocation of resources. You're going to see the open door for corruption and how that's going to go, uh, like ideological nepotism, if you will. Um, you're going to undermine through that process competence hierarchies. If you talk to any blue-collar person who works in any factory where there's any risk to their skin about the diversity hire that's their floor manager, you'll hear all about how the competence hierarchy has been undermined. They do not trust their manager. They do not trust the person who's overseeing the floor that can kill them if something goes bad. And they have good reasons to, because when you hire for a metric other than competence, that lack of trust, it doesn't matter if the person's actually qualified. The lack of trust comes in the ambiguity and the doubt of was this person hired as a diversity hire. This also causes workers to lose motivation. I can't work hard and become a floor manager myself because I'm white. They're never going to give it to me. 
I'll never get that job. One of these Supreme Court cases that I've discussed, it was the Steelworkers versus Weber, if I'm not mistaken. The, the deal there was that they actually had hiring, they had a program to raise up from the lowest level to the higher levels of employment. And their deal was that they were admitting one white person for each black person that came in. But this is, um, it, was, it was a situation where something like 90 some odd percent of the employees were white. And so this creates, you could only get in as, as white if they had already let in a black person to equal out for you. So the, the program to advance was actually 50% black by definition. And that meant that a whole lot of people who were qualified possibly to go to this program to advance not just their own careers in their own interest, but in the terms of whatever the company's producing, the best talent, a lot of it's just getting excluded. And a lot of those people psychologically, when you look at the, as we said last night, motivation theory, motivation theory they, go, they get demotivated. Why try? I can't qualify. I don't know what I can say about too much about whatever, but I will mention that I do know a college professor who, I don't want to name any names, but I do know a college professor who was told quietly that when he was hired in his professor job, um, his, his department head told him, or so I hear, you will never gain tenure here because you're a white man. And if you ever tell anybody that I said it's because you're a white man, I'll deny it and call you a racist. accuse you of saying I do diversity hiring, which is a racist position to hold. It also, by the way, induces imposter syndrome. We talked about that last night. Same problem with equity appears in diversity more severely. People who think that their diversity might be diversity hires, that same ambiguity, that same lack of trust, doesn't just, it's not just I don't trust somebody else I think might be a diversity hire. I don't trust myself to be competent if I think I might be a diversity hire. You just, you just like me because I'm pretty. You don't really respect my intelligence. You know, that's framing that in an older argument that, that would have come up. Same thing. Imposter syndrome, I've, if I recall correctly, when I graduated with my PhD, 75% of PhDs had imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is the belief that you are, at, it is the erroneous belief usually, that you are actually an imposter, that you're actually incompetent, and that it's only a matter of time until you're found out. It's, it's in the paranoid spectrum. It seriously undercuts your ability to focus on your work, to do your best work, because you're constantly kind of undermining yourself. And I hear frequently from people who have been hired, who are in these categories, who believe that they are suffering, or they, that they are in suffering from imposter syndrome until they do ridiculous amounts of tests to, with their employer to find out that they're not. Another undercutting, this is a story I heard from an academic a master's student. He was black, and he started to get the impression that they weren't correcting his work very rigorously. So he, being an intelligent man, began to put mistakes in his work on purpose, which then did not get graded. They didn't get marked, and he kept getting great grades. Nobody would correct him because it would be against diversity. To, it would be racist, in fact, to correct a black person in his perspective. But he was putting intentional errors in his work. And then he graduated, and he was you know, he gets his degree, now he has imposter syndrome because he knows his degree is kind of fake, and he goes to try to get jobs, so he has low confidence when he's interviewing, but it doesn't matter because when there's actually a skills demonstration, he can't do it because his skills were never sharpened by the program that was more concerned about his diversity feelings than it was about turning him into a competent professional who would actually become a success in his field, which would have actually served 
the ideas or the ideals that they claim to represent. So this doesn't perfectly fit here, but we got to do a let's go Brandon alley-oop. <laughs> the, the woke have two rule books. He, got, he asked earlier, Brandon asked earlier, can you talk about how the woke have two rule books? It really fits in an inclusion, so everybody but Brandon will get a good dose of it tomorrow. Um, but I'll mention it here. This really is kind of the, the diversity and inclusion access is where the two sets of rule books come in. They have the rules for themselves, which is that if you qualify as authentically diverse, you get special treatment. And if you qualify as privileged in some way, then you get special punishment. Ultimately, this is a justification, and this is where the inclusion part's gonna be very interesting, for the enactment of repressive tolerance, which was Marcuse's idea for how to overthrow a situation, which is to make only one side have advantages and to constantly disadvantage the other side. So what you have to understand is that people who are regarded as diverse have a set of rules that's not the same set of rules of you uh, that you would have if you're not considered diverse. And why does this matter? Because people think that this is hypocrisy. It is not. It is intentional strategy. It is a demoralizing strategy, as a matter of fact, to give certain people special privileges for what amounts to a bad or arbitrary reason. The, the two sets of rule books, or the hypocrisy, as it were, is the point. It is a deliberate strategy. And from the position of thinking in terms of power dynamics, not to be cruel, or unfair, I should say, not to be uncharitable, to, I can represent the argument correctly, I can steel man it. From the view of power dynamics, if you think only in terms of power dynamics, having two sets of rule books is necessary. They call it leveling the playing field because they believe that the playing field is inherently unlevel. And so you already have segregation, you already have discrimination, you already have bias, you already have racialization. So now you have to de-racialize by bringing up race to level the playing field. You have to desegregate by segregating groups to level the playing field because that power dynamics beating on people all the time. So you create two sets of rule books in order to level the playing field. Their argument always boils down to bias already exists so we're gonna favor our bias. If we're all biased, if there's no neutrality, we heard that there's no neutral position from, we heard that from Fredrickson, we heard that, we know it from D'Angelo and Kendi, et cetera. We know it's core to critical race theory that there is no neutral. We heard it from Baidal, we heard it from, uh, uh, from Judith Katz. The same idea again and again and again. Um, you, you absolutely have to correct for that if you've adopted this mindset. Their idea is bias is everywhere, and the only way to fix the fact that bias is everywhere is to lean into biases that intentionally fix the problem, which is neo-socialism. It's socialism applied to all the axes of identity, not just economics. Same thing. We're going to now redistribute the material resources in old-school socialism, vulgar socialism. In neo-socialism, we're going to redistribute privilege. We're going to enforce that to create a level playing field. By how? By adjusting shares so that citizens are made equal. That was the equity part we saw last night. So the, dual, the two sets of rule books is an intentional strategy. It gives them an advantage, and it also makes people who are disadvantaged by it demoralized. It is to create an entirely new sensibility in the way that we approach society where we have to think that power is relevant to everything. And as you think about that more and more, thinking in terms of power, I would say, is probably one of the most corrupting things you can do. It corrupts your entire mentality. It brings everything into a cynical analysis. You, if somebody gives me something, I have to start believe. Like, you give me a nice bottle of wine, and I have to think, what's his ulterior motive? 
What did you really want out of it? That's the critical mentality. You benefit from this somehow. What's your angle? You know, is he just trying to buy me off? You know, that paranoid and cynical mentality grows out of that, and it's an intentional thing. I'm going to read rather at length, I don't know how much of it, I may skip some, from Tensoy and D'Angelo to give you just a closer look at the tools that get applied in diversity trainings. And this is kind of the last chunk of things I want to read to you. Critical social justice considerations. So she's going to name a few of these. I think, I don't know if I did just one or two, but this is actually a couple of pages. This is near the end of Is Everyone Really Equal? This is a very important window into their mind, so bear with the length of it. We're doing a podcast here. You know how it works. Defensiveness as seen through critical social justice consideration. Another dynamic in this scenario is the defensiveness the students feel, this is her white fragility shtick, when the instructor points out the lack of diversity. This defensiveness signals that the ideology of individualism has been challenged. See this cynical mindset is already creeping in. In our dominant groups, we are not socialized to see ourselves as group members and it is common to take umbrage at the suggestion that this, is an aspect, that this aspect of our identity matters. For example, to feel defensive at the suggestion that her race, class, or gender is relevant to our life experiences. So her argument is people in dominant or privileged groups never have to think about identity, but because identity category is imposed by the power system on the minoritized groups, they always have to think about identity. So it's a, fact, uh, it's a feature of privilege and luxury not to have to think about your race or your sex or your gender as part of your identity. If you're straight, you don't even have to think about your straightness as part of your identity. If you're gay, you constantly do. If you're white, you don't have to think about what it means to be a white person, but if you're black, you constantly have to think about what it means. And you can see what this is, is that cultural protection racket. We're gonna say, oh, well, black people are separate and different somehow, and then we're, we're not, the critical race theorists are the ones pushing this division rather than trying to bring in harmony they're not trying to bring us under an e pluribus unum from many one, but we have some one that we're all part of mentality, a superordinate identity, as that's called in the literature. We're not going to do that anymore. Now we're going to divide, but we're going to say we have to divide because of iron law of woke projection. We have to divide because the power is already dividing us. That's what she's talking about here. To point out the relevance of our group memberships is to challenge a privilege to which we often feel entitled the privilege to see ourselves and to be seen by others as individuals outside of social groups. Now remember, this is she's, she's analyzing the idea of defensiveness. So this is a diversity training manual in education. And what I'm saying is this is what happens in diversity training. People are going to get told that they're racist, blah, blah, blah. They're going to get defensive. And she's trying to say your defensiveness is just another manifestation of your power. So you're guilty by the fact that you don't like having been called something that you might not actually be. Your false accusation, supposing it's false, incensing you is proof that it wasn't false. That's the Kafka trap that you've probably heard of. So this is also, by the way, just straight psychological abuse. There's no other way to put it. This is psychological abuse. People who are employing this in a professional capacity are psychologically abusing the people that they're doing this to. It's also cult grooming. They're giving you cult ideology, and they're saying your defensiveness to accepting this is a flaw with you, to create the vulnerability in you that can then be resolved by accepting the doctrine. That's textbook cult indoctrination. Generate vulnerability, give the way out of that discomfort through doctrine, through the acceptance and promotion of doctrine. Then twist the ratchet and make it tighter the next time. Twist the ratchet and make it tighter the next time. Here, literally undermining the idea that you can disagree without it being a symptom 
of an underlying disease. Remember, Judith Katz said, and Patricia Vidal said that it's schizophrenia. The student's defensiveness also indicates that they are coming from a good-bad binary. The teacher has raised the issue of race, among other things, and applied that something is racially problematic about the demographics of the class. Unfortunately, the defensiveness indicates that they might not be as open to the discussion as they could be, and this makes it harder for the instructor to broach it. See, you're making it hard for me to do my job. You're not even, you're just, you being defensive is just slowing me down. It's, it's just psychological abuse. The defensiveness also sends an unwelcoming message to everyone else in the room who may want to engage constructively with the issue. See, you're just holding everybody else back. You're the problem. Everybody here wants to go along. You're the problem. This invokes a kind of version of what's known as the Abilene Paradox. The Abilene Paradox is what happens when, say, the four of us or whatever get together. I know I don't know which four of you it is. And we're like, let's go out to the beach tonight when it gets dark. Or, you know, something like this. And everybody in the group thinks everybody wants to go out to the beach. So nobody says, I don't want to go out on the beach in the dark, but nobody actually wants to go out on the beach in the dark. So somebody brings up the idea, were we going out to the beach tonight? And so everybody's like, yeah, we could do that. And the next thing you know, all four of you or 10 of you are on the beach in the dark, standing there with the crabs crawling across your toes, wondering how you got there, because nobody actually wanted to be there. That's called the Abilene Paradox. Nobody wanted to do it, but everybody did it because they thought everybody wanted to do it, and nobody wanted to buck the group. Here we see that employed intentionally as a lever the whole group wants to engage with this diversity and you're holding us up by objecting. Don't object, your defensiveness is a symptom of you trying to preserve your privilege, you're the problem. We all want to do this. It's a weaponization of that psychology. Of course, we don't, we don't mean to imply that defensiveness is not normal or temporary or that the students are not open to discussion at all, but defensiveness in this context is an indication of a dominant worldview. This is how diversity think, training thinks. This is what they're teaching people to think. Defensiveness is an indication of a dominant worldview. You're only defensive because you're privileged and you don't want to give that up. You terrible, selfish, greedy person. You only didn't get the vaccine because you're selfish. Same mentality applied in a different domain for divide and conquer, for vicious scapegoating of the outgroup that it creates. From a critical social justice perspective, defensiveness should be an indicator to us that we are falling into the good-bad binary or that some aspect of the, our dominant group position is being threatened. It's a psychological problem with you that you don't want to accept our cult. And that way we can use our defensiveness as an entry point into deeper self-awareness. This is literally a thing that I heard in the Brown Fragility training that I was told about from my Indian-American friend. They literally accused them, they brought the, the brown people, because Brown Fragility, brown is a race now. Brown, the brown race. They bring the brown people in, and then they tell them, you're anti-black, and then they let them sit with that. They actually all made them confess to their anti-blackness. And imagine being the person who doesn't have anything to say. It's a cult trick. That's a that was a real diversity session at a real company. They all had to confess their anti-blackness. And then they were told, if you feel any defensiveness, that's actually your alignment with white privilege. That's your brown privilege, which upholds white supremacy and anti-blackness. Your defensiveness is proof that you're complicit in this problem. They were told that. You can go read on the new discourses on the um, social justice encyclopedia that I made, the entries for brown complicity and brown fragility and brown privilege, um, and see that they really do have literature back. It's all new though. Brown, the brown ones only came out of the woodwork in the last few years, and most of the brown ones only came out of the woodwork after George Floyd died, which is really interesting. 
It was just white fragility, and then all of a sudden they had to throw the brown people under the bus too when the mask came off because they were advancing. So additional layers of complexity, they say, is another critical social justice of, uh, uh, consideration. So it's always more complex. It's simple, don't be racist. No, it's always more complex. There's always this vague complexity, why? Because your diversity officer has the only knowledge to guide you through the complexities. This is called the guru mechanism. It establishes somebody who you have to go to in order to get the answers. Why do they want to get rid of objectivity in mathematics? Because then you have to go to the math teacher to tell you what right answers in math look like. Why do they want to get rid of objectivity in admissions? Because then they can use subjective ones where the party apparatus gets to make the decisions. It's always more complex and you need specialists, formally trained experts on racism or diversity to guide you through this incredibly complicated thing. They try to make it out like this whole idea of power dynamics is like the Atlantic out here, this deep, huge ocean. In truth, it's actually a very large body of water, maybe a great lake, it's not an ocean, but it's about an inch deep. There's literally no depth to it. They want you to think it's an ocean, but it's all on the surface. And so additional layers of complexity. They want you to think it's too complex for your pea-brained, lacking epistemic authority, privileged mind to grasp, so you have to listen to them. Robin D'Angelo, she'll tell you. She knows. She knows all about racism. Now let's imagine, she says, this is complexity, that the person who points out the lack of diversity is a person of color or a member of any other minoritized group who is not represented in any significant way in that setting. In this case, there are at least two, key, two key dynamics to consider. So here's the scenario. Somebody objected to the diversity training, but it was, a it was a person of color or some other minoritized group member. It's not a white person. The privilege argument isn't there. So now we have to go to additional layers of complexity to say how they're still bad. This is why Kanye ain't black anymore. This is why Larry Elder is the black face of white supremacy. We have two key dynamics to consider. They're very complex. The first dynamic is the risk it takes to bring up an issue of critical social justice to dominant group members. See, they're afraid to say that they actually experience racism in front of people because then racism will probably increase because dominance always asserts itself. The risk it takes to bring up an issue of critical social justice to dominant group members, and particularly dominant group members who are in the numerical majority in the setting. Remember, key patterns of dominant group members include, they are usually not aware of injustice and or deny its existence. They're defensive about the, the suggestion that it exists. They don't like to be reminded of forms of injustice that benefit them, and they tend to lack the humility to listen to minoritized groups. That's what they're teaching in your diversity training. You think that's gonna make life better? These patterns make it very difficult for minoritized people to speak out. That's why you have to have a critical mass of them. That's why we need more diversity, so they can feel comfortable being radicals in the office. You get enough radicals and you can't stop them. Turns out to only take three and a half percent. Based on well-grounded past experience, they are likely to be acutely aware of the risks and know that if they are outnumbered, or know that they are outnumbered and unable to count on anyone else in the room to support them. That's of course just absurd in the present environment. The room polarizes in every single case, and half the room, almost usually literally to the letter, supports them, sometimes far more. Look at what happened with George Floyd. Every company on the planet, I think, every government agency, 
Every, everything, every university's writing boilerplate that was so much so similar, so similar that people thought that they were distributed from a central source. Absurd. Even if there's a dominant group member in the room who understands the point being made and the importance of engaging with it, if they play it safe and don't use their position to support the person who raised the issue, they're de facto supporting the unwelcoming climate in the setting. So if you actually are a dominant group member, you now have to take the side of the person of color who raised whatever issue. A second key dynamic to consider is that dominant group members tend to dismiss the voices of minoritized group members as representing special or biased interest, angry and disruptive, emotional, emotional and illogical, and therefore unworthy of consideration. When the minoritized person is the instructor of the class, the chair of a meeting, or the facilitator of a session, their status of temporary authority will be overridden by their rank as a minoritized group member, and any expertise they bring to the discussion may be quickly dismissed. So you can tell these people are utterly obsessed with thinking about race and racial power literally all the time in every situation and can't conceive of the idea that other people don't. And that's what they teach in diversity training. This is straight out of a book that's used to teach diversity training and education to educators. Is Everyone Really Equal? by Uslam Sensoy and Robin D'Angelo, 2012 in the first edition, which is the edition I prefer. Because I have it. No, actually, because they lay out right at the beginning. I, I, conspiracy theory time. The very beginning of the first edition is like, we are unabashedly neo-Marxist. Here's what neo-Marxism is about. We use critical theory. Here's the Frankfurt School. Here's postmodernism. We're in with all these guys. That's like pages like four, seven. Unabashedly identity politics, blah, blah, blah. And now that stuff appears on like page 58 in the second edition. So I seriously think the point of the second edition was just to take... The, to bury the lead, to stick it 50 pages in so that nobody picking up and flipping through the first chapter is going to pick up on the fact that this is a ridiculous Marxist education book. So she then, so she then explains critical social justice perspective. She says, in order to constructively interrupt the dynamics of oppression in, in, in this scenario, the following perspectives and skills are necessary. So this is what your facilitator of your diversity training is going to use. This is what your diversity officers are going to force people to, to employ to resolve anything that comes up. See at the group level and understand the saliency of your group memberships. So now we're thinking in group collectives that don't get along. You're polarizing and balkanizing the environment. Recognize that colorblindness hides rather than addresses social injustice. So now we're going to enforce race consciousness. Recognize what is lost in homogeneity. So now we have multiculturalism. Move beyond good-bad binaries. I'll just laugh at that one. Work from the knowledge that the societal default is oppression. Start with believing everything is oppression, that there are no spaces free of it. Thus, the question becomes, how is it manifesting here rather than is it manifesting here? So the assumption is that oppression is happening. Your job is to find it, to, to turn you into a critical theorist, to awaken your critical consciousness. Relevant critical social justice skills, lower any defensiveness you may be feeling. Come to the dark side. Educate your, give in to your anger. <laughs> Come to the dark side. There's power here. What a mythology. Educate yourself about groups you have been separated from. Robin D'Angelo has strange groups of friends. Build authentic cross-group relationships. Remember I was talking about critical authenticity? Authentic means committed, ongoing, and mutual relationships and does not mean seeking out a lone member of the minoritized group to educate you. So in other words, you have to have an authentic relationship 
uh, based in the awareness of the critical theory without having them teach you the critical theory. So the big takeaways you can see from a real diversity training book is that this is emotionally abusive. It's all based in unfalsifiable assertions because to say, to, dis to dispute it is being defensive or to ignore complexity. Um, and that being a formally trained expert in whether it's critical diversity or anti-racism or whatever it is, means having this perspective so you have to be the person hired. You have to be the person in charge of this. You have to be the person that's gonna facilitate this. The bigger picture look then is that the push for diversity, which opens the gates to the push for critical diversity is nested within the older multiculturalism movement. That was the kind of impetus, and we're gonna see now identity characteristics as cultures, and rather than try to melting pot those away with e pluribus unum or appeal to superordinate identities, America's really beautiful, by the way, if you didn't realize the magic, there are many magics of America, but one of them is that you can come here with whatever, if you're an immigrant, for example, or you can be of whatever cultural background that you want, and you can continue, to, you can, you know, have your, you can think of Puerto Rican Flag Day, your Puerto Rican, I'm thinking, a Seinfeld popped into my head, so we're thinking of the Puerto Rican Day Parade episode. You can have your cultural identity and keep it and be American. Critical theories, especially critical race theory, take the approach from W.E.B. Du Bois, where he wrote in The Souls of Black Folk, which, by the way, was written in 1903, which means it might have been written in slightly different racial conditions. He says, he asked the, the open question in the opening part of The Souls of Black Folks, how is it possible to be, or is it possible to be an American and a Negro? In other words, that's a separate culture entirely. The diversity industry actually works to undermine the idea that yeah, you can have certain elements that are unique to your culture, but we're all American together, e pluribus unum, and replace it with a fragmented multicultural approach where protected classes that are in the minoritized group are going to have all of their culture, cultural artifacts protected through things like cultural appropriation bans uh, and so on, and claims of any dis disagreements being cultural racism and to browbeat people that way. And getting away from, therefore, anything that brings people together or unifies them. So it is division by race. The Marxists actually have this right. The old, old school Marxists on the World Socialist website wrote, a, they have dozens of unbelievably scathing articles on critical race theory on their site. Old school Marxists and neo-Marxists don't really get along. And they say that critical, they're against critical race theory because the intent is workers of the world unite, not races of the world divide they see very clearly that this is conflict theory being applied in the, for them, and it's the right conflict theory applied in the wrong domain, which fractures the possibility of worker solidarity, which is how their entire theory proceeds. So they understand that it's divisive. Um, multiculturalism, by the way, just to say it for once on tape, is a failed project. It's not the same as e pluribus unum pluralism, where we have a superordinate identity, but we celebrate who we are, uh, or where we come from in whatever ways we think are fitting. Um, it's in fact identity balkanization, identity tribalism, and these critical approaches to diversity encourage that within the institution, within the entire population. It is therefore a neo-Marxist, an identity Marxist breeding ground. It's very easy for them to colonize anything that takes up even a friendly version of kind of a multicultural approach because they're going to then come in and frame the differences between the identity groups as cultures and saying that those cultures were shaped by the structurally determinant effects of systemic power. 
oh, the systems of power and all that complexity, that's why we have different cultures. And that's why we have to protect the threatened cultures from integration or whatever, and instead rely on inclusivity or inclusion as a weird, um, different project to, to approach rather than integrating. It's a failed project. Of course, the bigger picture is also the diversity. I've already mentioned it, so I won't beat on it, is all about getting your good ESG score, and that's a big driver. But I want to talk for a minute about another mentality based in the both multiculturalism and ESG world that recently came on my radar, which is the concept of a global citizen. The diversity project writ largest is global citizenry. There's no such thing as a global citizen. Let me say that again. You'll hear this from all of these people. When I went on the Dr. Phil, that's how I realized this. They said uncannily many times, the people representing the critical race theory side, they said, oh, this is to make our kids global citizens. I want to be a good global citizen. They said global citizen so many times, I wondered if it came from some central scripting. I was sitting in the back in the green room waiting very furiously for my turn to come out, listening to say global citizen, global citizen, global citizen, so many times that it was weird how many times they said global citizen. And I thought, there's something to this. And I sat for about two seconds, I was like, there's no such thing as a global citizen. Because a citizen is somebody who has protected rights under a sovereign. They have full participation within that entity. The globe does not have such a thing. We do not have a global government that provides the benefits and duties of citizenship to everybody on the planet. It's a fake buzzword. It does not mean, oh, I'm a person who lives on this planet where we can get on planes and travel. It means let's start priming and operationalizing the environment to get people to think in terms of global citizenship so when we propose a global government, we're like, oh, that makes sense because we're already global citizens. Of course, global citizens need representation in a global government. The diversity project writ largest is the global citizenry, thus one global government project, global sovereignty project. That will be your stakeholders, your public-private partnership, whatever it is. We're going to enforce this through SD, uh, sustainable development goals and uh, ESG, environmental, social, and governance uh, metrics. So what can be done about this diversity mess? I don't want to end on such a dour, scary, negative note, but we're almost done. Mostly you need to avoid diversity if you're running a company, don't have a diversity program. Why? Even though there's benefits to real diversity, and we'll come back to that in a second, because the word's been captured and tainted. It's very difficult to play in a rhetorical playing field that has been captured by a very ideologically motivated and intolerant movement. It's very difficult to use the words that they own in some other way to try to trick them with language. They are better at the word game than most of you. Don't use diversity. Don't have a diversity program. Vivek's answer in Woke Inc. is to offer other values besides DEI and to dilute DEI to irrelevance. Things like merit, um, outcomes. I forgot what he actually lists. We should all look it up. Everybody go read Woke Inc. Other values. Embrace those. Responsibility is the kryptonite to their entire movement. So make your diversity or your diversity arm actually a responsibility arm, an accountability arm in terms of real accountability, meaning that we're going to take responsibility for our actions, and if we don't, we're going to be held accountable like you don't work here anymore. In general, you actually, this is a bigger point broader, more broadly, you don't want to hand, lend a hand to authoritarianism any more than you absolutely have to to get by. And I've added that last qualifier 
Because if it's in the dark, if you, we go all the way into the dark, you do have to do what you have to do to get by. If we actually enter into totalitarianism, the rules change. We are not entered into totalitarianism. We are at the cusp. And so we still have enough freedom where it is not a good idea to lend energy to authoritarianism. So with diversity, don't use the word diversity. They own that. But more kind of importantly, not to get off topic from DEI or poison this, this lecture or whatever with something, don't get a fake vaccine card so that you can get your vaccine passport without having to get the vaccine. Yeah, you tricked the system. Yeah, you got away with it. Yeah, you get to have all the privileges of people, but you didn't do it. That's what you do when you're under actual tyranny, because you have to. When you don't have actual tyranny, you're condoning the idea of the passport in the first place. You're participating in the creation of the tyranny, if the tyranny's not already here, to go along ahead of time. Using a diversity, equity, and inclusion program that you're just gonna define it differently and he, 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 you're gonna get away with it. That'll work in a small business, by the way. You actually mean something different by DEI. You're gonna do that and you're gonna call it that and everybody's gonna leave you alone because you have one. And most times, most people aren't gonna look too close and you can get away with it for a while and you can play the BS rhetoric game. DEI is a totalitarian takeover of your organization. Don't lend it legitimacy. Reject it entirely. Uh, and you won't get away with it forever because if you get big enough, you're going to get an ESG officer forced on you who's going to bust you in the end, and they're going to completely revamp everything you're doing, and it's going to be a catastrophe. Or somebody's going to figure you out and create their PR nightmare around you, and you're going to have to deal with that, and you better be real strong in those values instead that you should have called by their right names in the first place. So outright defiance when you don't have tyranny is a better way. It's also more honest. If you are going to use diversity, though, and you want to play, whether it's playing that linguistic game or just satisfying a checkbox, or you feel like it's important for some reason, or you actually want to tap into the benefits that an actual diversity program would bring, I urge you to focus only on what I would call functional diversity, purposed diversity. You have to have a reason. Why are you bringing in somebody with a certain diverse characteristic? That's what the... That's what Powell was trying to do very clumsily, unfortunately, in the Backey decision, so far as I can tell. He was saying, we want to bring in people. We want farm boys. We want Bostonians. We want violinists. We want classicists. We want physicists. We want actual different perspectives as a function. So you have a goal orientation in mind. Our company is trying to do X. We need people with different perspectives relevant to X in order to optimize that. That kind of diversity is beneficial. And if you want to call that your diversity program, risk your playing the risky language game, fine. If you want to call it something else but focus on that, that's the way to go. But like I said, just as a kind of super positive last statement, other than e pluribus unum, which is the correct answer to diversity, it's already the best diversity program ever created, um, most successful also, but the easiest way to deal with these diversity cajolers not the managers. So if you have some employee a business that comes in and says, I think we need to have more diverse hiring, is to hand them the one thing they like the least, responsibility with accountability attached. You will almost never find a woke person that's highly responsible ever. They don't want to take responsibility. They want more diversity in the business, but they don't want to do it. So if you give them a responsibility with an accountability line, You'll break them. I know this because I've talked to a CEO of a company, or actually a president of a company, it's different, I guess, that actually did this. The, C, the, the DEI stuff started up in his workforce. He saw it coming. 
He knew right after George Floyd, he knew it was a bad deal. He didn't want to do it. The white suburb moms, a couple of them came to him. We need more talent from different racial groups, whatever it was. And he said, you know, great idea. Let's have a meeting. Pulls him into the office, talks to him. He's like, it's your job now. You're right. There's probably talent out there that we aren't even we aren't even reaching. And if we find that, it's going to advance our company. It's going to make us a lot of money. We're going to do our job better. It is your job to find those people, this many, by this date. If you do, you get a promotion and a title. If you don't, you're fired. What do you think suburban moms did? They quit within two weeks. They didn't want the responsibility. They wanted to agitate. You want to understand that a lot of times the people asking for this aren't actually all that serious about it. They're not serious enough to put their money where their mouth is. They don't want to do it. They know it's hard. They don't want the responsibility. They want to outsource that responsibility. So if you meet this, and it, this is the antidote to the diversity thing, other than focusing on individualism, obviously, and merit and so on, if you put it in terms of responsibility, it actually breaks down a lot of what they're doing. And one of the magic tricks with that is if somebody's asking for it, it's their job now. And if they can't do their job, they're fired. It's, it works. It's absolutely brutal. The biggest thing, though, of course, the answer is what the critical race theorists like, um, and like Robin D'Angelo says, is wrong. Individualism equipped with colorblind equality is the way. So uh, when I was on Dr. Phil and nobody has seen yet, I can tell you, Dr. Phil was like, well, what are you going to replace it with if you don't do the critical race theory? And I was like, colorblind equality. And it was like the whole critical race theory side like started to have, I can't do the wrong movements because they'll be trumped. But they were like, whoops, I did it. Um, take that. Orange man, good. <laughs> the truth is, though, that if we focus on people as individuals and look at them in terms of exactly what, with the beginning of this lecture, D'Angelo said is the problem, then you have the right answer. Look at people as, a, as individuals who have unique talents, unique personalities, unique character, unique merits, unique something to bring to the table that doesn't have anything to do most of the time with what they look like. Although there is some, of course, statistical correlation with what you happen to look like and what culture you might have grown up in, and there's sometimes cultural relevance. You always want to think of people in terms of individuals. You don't want to think in terms of power dynamics if you must take in a group analysis. If groups have to be relevant for some decision that comes across, do not say that the group is defined in terms of a power dynamic that's vague and cartoonish and based in stereotypes that really mostly went out of style five decades ago that are being kept on life support by agitators and activists who wish the world worked that way so that they can create conflict that will allow them to have a revolution. And that revolution might happen in your group, in your affinity, or your, your workplace, or in the society writ large. So honor the individual. Start thinking, I'm going to talk a lot more about it tomorrow at the end of After Inclusion, a lot more about e pluribus unum as a fundamental American value. It's on every single coin for a reason. From many, one. That one part is really important. We recognize the many, but at the end of the day, we're one. The goal with this critical DEI or critical diversity is from one, many. It gets it backwards. So think about that. 
Bring that to whatever discussions you have. Bring that to the people you talk to. Bring that to your organization. Why are we not focusing on some unifying identity like, hey, we all work here. Hey, we're all focused on the mission of the organization. Hey, we all want to teach kids or whatever it happens to be. And we come together as that, hey, we're all Americans too. Why don't we have a barbecue later and you know, wave flags and stuff? That's the answer to diversity. E Pluribus Unum, which like I just said a minute ago, is already the most successful diversity program ever instituted on the face of this planet. So that's where we'll end for diversity. We'll pick up with inclusion tomorrow. Thank you.